0: Be sure to follow Send Me To Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me To Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined us tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Emily Climbs, Chapter 12, At the Sign of the Haystack, and Chapter 13, Haven. In the last chapter, Emily had just finished school for the year, and was heading back to spend the summer at New Moon. In these chapters... Emily spends her weekend in Shrewsbury, embarking on a journey to the next town with Ilsa. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do at the sign of the haystack. Why do you want to do a thing like that? said Aunt Ruth, sniffing, of course. A sniff may always be taken for granted with each of Ruth's remarks, even when the present biographer omits mention of it. To poke some dollars into my slim purse, said Emily. Holidays were over. The garden book had been written and read in installments to Cousin Jimmy in the dusk of July and August, to his great delight. And now it was September, with its return to school and studies the land of uprightness, and Aunt Ruth. Emily, with skirts a fraction longer, and her hair clubbed up so high in the cadogan braid of those days, that it really was almost up, was back in Shrewsbury for her junior year, and she had just told Aunt Ruth What she meant to do on her Shrewsbury Saturdays for the autumn. The editor of the Shrewsbury Times was planning a special illustrated Shrewsbury edition, and Emily was going to canvas as much of the country as she could cover for subscriptions to it. She had wrung a rather reluctant consent from Aunt Elizabeth. A consent which could never have been extorted if Aunt Elizabeth had been paying all Emily's expenses at school. But there was Wallace paying for her books and tuition fees, and occasionally hinting to Elizabeth that he was a very fine, generous fellow to do so. Elizabeth, in her secret heart was not over-fond of her brother Wallace, and resented his splendid airs over the little help he was extending to Emily. So, when Emily pointed out that she could easily earn, during the fall, at least half enough to pay for her books for the whole year, Elizabeth yielded, Wallace would have been offended if she, Elizabeth had insisted on paying Emily's expenses when he took a notion to do it, but he could not reasonably resent Emily earning her part for herself. He was always preaching that girls should be self-reliant and able to earn their own way in life. Aunt Ruth could not refuse when Elizabeth had assented, but she did not approve. The idea of your wandering over the country alone. Oh, I'll not be alone. Ilsa is going with me, said Emily. Aunt Ruth did not seem to consider this much of an improvement. "'We're going to begin Thursday,' said Emily. "'There's no school Friday, owing to the death of Principal Hardy's father, "'and our classes are over at three on Thursday afternoon. "'We're going to canvas the Western Road that evening. "'May I ask if you intend to camp on the side of the road?' "'Oh, no. We'll spend the night with Ilsa's aunt in Wiltney. "'Then, on Friday, we'll cut back to the Western Road, "'finish it that day, and spend Friday night with Mary Carswell's people at St. Clare. "'Then work home Saturday by the River Road.' "'It's perfectly absurd,' said Aunt Ruth.' No Murray ever did such a thing. I'm surprised at Elizabeth. It simply isn't decent for two young girls like you and Dilsa to be wandering alone over the country for three days. What do you suppose could happen to us? asked Emily. A good many things might happen, said Aunt Ruth severely. She was right. A good many things might, and did, happen in that excursion, but Emily and Ilsa set off in high spirits Thursday afternoon. Two graceless schoolgirls with an eye for the funny side of everything, and a determination to have a good time. Emily especially was feeling uplifted. There had been another thin letter in the mail that day, with the address of a third-rate magazine in the corner, offering her three subscriptions to the said magazine for her poem, Night in the Garden, which had formed the conclusion of her garden book and was considered both by herself and, and cousin Jimmy to be the gem of the volume. Emily had left the garden book locked up in the mantel cupboard of her room at New Moon, but she meant to send copies of its tale pieces to various publications during the fall. It's all good well that the first one sent had been accepted so promptly. Well, we're off, she said, over the hills and far away. What an alluring old phrase. Anything may be beyond those hills ahead of us. I hope we'll get lots of material for our essays, said Ilse, practically. Principal Hardy had informed the junior English class that he would require several essays from them during the fall term, and Emily and Ilsa had decided that one at least of their essays should recount their experiences in canvassing for subscriptions from their separate points of view. Thus, they had two strings to their bow. I suggest we work along the Western Road and its branches as far as Hunter's Creek tonight, said Emily. We ought to get there by sunset. Then we can hit the Gypsy Trail across the country, through the Malvern Woods, and come out on the other side of them, quite near Wiltney. It's only half an hour's walk while around by the Malvern Road, it's an hour. What a lovely afternoon this is. It was a lovely afternoon. Such an afternoon as only September can produce, when summer has stolen back one more day of dream and glamour. Harvest fields drenched in sunshine, lay about them. The austere charm of northern firs made wonderful the ways over which they walked. Goldenrod beribboned the fences, and the sacrificial fires of willow herb were kindled on all the burnt lands along the sequestered roads back along the hills. But they soon discovered that canvassing for subscriptions was not all fun, though, to be sure, as Ilsa said, they found plenty of human nature for their essays. There was the old man who said, hump, at the end of every remark Emily made. When finally asked for a subscription, he gruffly said, No. I'm glad you didn't say hump this time, said Emily. It was getting monotonous. The old fellow stared, then chuckled. Are ye any relation to the proud Murrays? I worked at a place they call New Moon when I was young, and one of the Murray girls, Elizabeth, was her name had a sort of high and lofty way of looking ye, just like yours. My mother was a Murray. I was thinking so. Ye bear the stamp of the breed. Well, here's two dollars, and ye kin can put my name down. I'd rather see the special edition before I subscribe. I don't favour buying bear skins afore I see the bear, but it's worth two dollars to see a proud Murray coming down to ask an old Bill Scott for a subscription. Why didn't you slay him with a glance? asked Ilsa as they walked away. Emily was walking savagely, with her head held high, and her eyes snapping. I'm out to get subscriptions, not to make widows. I didn't expect it would be all plain sailing. There was another man who growled all the way through Emily's explanations, and then, when she was primed for refusal, gave her five subscriptions. He likes to disappoint people, she told Ilse as they went down the lane. He would rather disappoint them agreeably than not at all. One man swore volubly. Not at anything in particular, but just at large, as Ilse said. And another old man was on the point of subscribing. When his wife interfered, I wouldn't if I were you, Father. The editor of that paper is an infidel. Very impudent of him, to be sure, said Father, and put his money back in his wallet. Delicious, murmured Emily when she was out of earshot. I must jot that down in my Jimmy book. As a rule, the women received them more politely than the men, but the men gave them more subscriptions. Indeed, the only woman who subscribed was an elderly dame, whose heart Emily won by listening sympathetically to a long account of the beauty and virtues. Of the said elderly lady's deceased pet thomas cat though it must be admitted that she whispered aside to ilsa at its conclusion charlotte town papers please copy their worst experience was with a man who treated them to a tirade of abuse because his politics differed from the politics of the times, and he seemed to hold them responsible for it. When he halted for breath, Emily stood up. "'Kick the dog, then you'll feel better,' she said calmly as she stalked out. Ilse was right with rage. "'Could you have believed people could be so detestable?' she exploded. "'To rate us as if we were responsible for the politics of the times. "'Well, human nature from a canvas's point of view is to be the subject of my essay. "'I'll describe that man and picture myself telling him all the things I wanted to and didn't.' Emily broke into laughter and found her temper again. You can. I can't even take that revenge. My promise to Aunt Elizabeth binds me. I shall have to stick to facts. Come, let's not think of the brute. After all, we've got quite a lot of subscriptions already, and there's a clump of white birches in which it is reasonably certain a dryad lives, and that cloud over the firs looks like the faint golden ghost of a cloud. Nevertheless, I should have liked to reduce that old vampire to powder, said Ilse. At the next place of call, however... Their experience was pleasant, and they were asked to stay for supper. By sunset, they had done reasonably well in the matter of subscriptions, and had accumulated enough private jokes and bywords to furnish fun for many moons of reminiscences. They decided to canvass no more that night, they had not quite as far as Hunter's Creek, but Emily thought it would be safe to make a cross-cut from where they were. The Malvern Woods were not so very extensive, and no matter where they came out on the northern side of them, they would be able to see Wiltney. They climbed a fence, went up across a hill pasture field feathered with asters, and were swallowed up by the Malvern woods, crossed and recrossed by dozens of trails. The world disappeared behind them, and they were alone in the realm of wild beauty. Emily thought the walk through the woods all too short, though tired Ilsa. Whose foot had turned on a pebble earlier in the day, found it unpleasantly long. Emily liked everything about it. She liked to see that shining gold head of Ilse's slipping through the grey green trunks under the long, swaying boughs. She liked the faint, dreamlike notes. Of sleepy birds. She liked the little wandering, whispering, tricksy winter dusk among the tree crests. She liked the incredibly delicate fragrance of wood flowers and growths. She liked the little ferns that brushed Ilsa's silken ankles. She liked that slender, white, tantalising thing which gleamed out for a moment adown the dim vistas of a winding path. Was it a birch or a wood nymph? No matter. It had given her the stab of poignant rapture she called the flash. Her priceless thing whose flitting, uncalculated moments were worth cycles of mere existence. Emily wandered on, thinking all the loveliness of the road and nothing of the road itself, absently following limping Ilsa, until at last the trees suddenly fell away before them. they found themselves in the open, with a wild sort of little pasture before them, and beyond in the clear afterlight, a long, sloping valley, rather bare and desolate, where the farmsteads had no great appearance of thrift or comfort. Why, where are we? said Ilsa blankly. I don't see anything like Wiltney. Emily came abruptly out of her dreams and tried to get her bearings. The only landmark visible was a tall spire on a hill ten miles away. Why, there's a spire of the Catholic Church at Indian Head she said flatly, and that must be hard scrabble road down there. We must have taken a wrong turning somewhere, Elsa. We've come out on the east of the woods instead of the north. Then we're five miles from Wilkney, said Ilsa despairingly. I can never walk that far. And we can't go back through those woods. It will be pitch dark in a quarter of an hour. What on earth can we do? Admit we're lost and make a beautiful thing of it, said Emily coolly. Oh, we're lost all right, to all intents and purposes, moaned Ilsa. "'climbing feebly up on the tumble-down fence and sitting there. "'But I don't see how we're going to make it beautiful. "'We can't stay here all night. "'The only thing to do is to go down and see if they'll put us up at any of those houses. "'I don't like the idea. "'If that's hard Scrabble Road, the people are all poor.' And dirty. I've heard Aunt Nette tell weird tales of hard Scrabble Road. Why can't we stay here all night? said Emily. Ilse looked at Emily to see if she meant it, and saw that she did. Where can we sleep? Hang ourselves on this fence? "'Over on that haystack,' said Emily. "'It's only half-finished. Hard-scrabble fashion. "'The top is flat. There's a ladder leaning against it. "'The hay is dry and clean. The night is summer-warm. "'There are no mosquitoes this time of year. "'We can put our raincoats over us to keep off the dew.' Why not? Ilsa looked at the haystack in the corner of the little pasture and began to laugh assentingly. What will Aunt Ruth say? Aunt Ruth need never know it. I'll be sly for once with a vengeance. Besides, I've always longed to sleep out in the open. It's been one of the secret wishes I believed were forever unattainable, hedged about as I am with aunts, and now it has tumbled into my lap like a gift thrown down by the gods. It's really such good luck as to be uncanny. Suppose it rains, said Ilsa, who nevertheless found the idea very alluring. It won't rain. There isn't a cloud in sight except those great fluffy rose and white ones piling up over Indian head. They're the kind of clouds that always make me feel that I'd love to soar up on wings as an eagle and swoop right down in the middle of them It was easy to ascend the little haystack. They sank down on its top with sighs of content, realizing that they were tireder than they had thought. The stack was built of the wild, fragrant grasses of the little pasture and yielded an indescribably alluring aroma, such as no cultivated clover could give they could see nothing but a great sky of faint rose above them, pricked with early stars and the dim fringe of treetops around the fields. Bats and swallows swooped darkly above them against the paling western gold. Delicate fragrances exhaled from the mosses and ferns Just over the fence under the trees, a couple of aspen poplars in the corner talked in silvery whispers of the gossip of the woods. They laughed together in sheer lawless pleasure. An ancient enchantment was suddenly upon them, and the white magic of the sky and the dark magic of the woods wove the final spell of a potent incantation. Such loveliness as this doesn't seem real, murmured Emily. It's so wonderful, it hurts me. I'm afraid to speak out loud, for fear it will vanish. Were we vexed with that horrid old man and his beastly politics today, Ilse? Why, he doesn't exist. Not in this world. I hear the wind woman running with soft, soft footsteps over the hill. I shall always think of the wind as a personality. She is a shrew when she blows from the north, a lonely seeker when she blows from the east, a laughing girl when she comes from the west, and tonight, from the south, a little grey fairy. How do you think of such things? asked Ilsa. This was a question which some mysterious reason. Always annoyed, Emily. I don't think of them. They come, she answered rather shortly. Elsa resented the tone. For heaven's sake, Emily, don't be such a crank, she exclaimed. For a second, The wonderful world in which Emily was at that moment living trembled and wavered like a disturbed reflection in the water. Then, Don't let's quarrel here, she implored. One of us might push the other off the haystack. Ilse burst out laughing. Nobody can really laugh and keep angry, so their night under the stars was not spoiled by a fight. They talked for a while in whispers of schoolgirl secrets and dreams and fears. They even talked of getting married sometime in the future. Of course they shouldn't have, but they did. Ilsa, it appeared, was slightly pessimistic in regard to her matrimonial chances. The boys like me as a pal, but I don't believe anyone will ever really fall in love with me. Nonsense, said Emily reassuringly. Nine out of ten men will fall in love with you but it will be the 10th thou I'll want," persisted Ilsa, gloomily. And then they talked of almost everything else in the world. Finally, they made a solemn compact that whichever one of them died first was to come back to the other if it were possible. How many such compacts have been made? and has even one ever been kept. Then Ilsa grew drowsy and fell asleep. But Emily did not sleep. Did not want to sleep. It was too dear a night to go to sleep, she felt. She wanted to lie awake for the pleasure of it and think over a thousand things. Emily always looked back to that night spent under the stars as a sort of milestone. Everything in it and of it ministered to her. It filled her with its beauty, which she must later give to the world. She wished that she could coin some magic word that might express it. The moon rose did an old witch in a high-crowned hat ride past on a broomstick? No, it was only a bat and a little tip of hemlock tree by the fence. She made a poem on it at once, the lines singing themselves through her consciousness without effort. With one side of her nature, she liked writing prose best, With the other, she liked writing poetry. This side was uppermost tonight, and her very thoughts ran into rhyme. A great pulsating star hung low in the sky over Indian head. Emily gazed on it and recalled Teddy's old fancy of his previous existence in a star. The idea seized on her imagination, and she spun a dream life, lived in some happy planet circling round that mighty, far-off star. Then came the northern lights, drifts of pale fur over the sky, spears of light as of Empyrean armies. pale elusive hosts retreating and advancing. Emily lay and watched them in rapture. Her soul was washed pure in that great bathe of splendour. She was a high priestess of loveliness, assisting at the divine rites of her worship, and she knew her goddess smiled. She was glad Ilsa was asleep. Any human companionship, even the dearest and most perfect, would have been alien to her then. She was sufficient unto herself, needing not love, nor comradeship, nor any human emotion to round out her felicity. Such moments came rarely in any life but when they do, they are inexpressibly wonderful. As if the finite were for a second, infinite. As if humanity were for a space, uplifted into divinity. As if all ugliness had vanished, leaving only flawless beauty. Oh, beauty. Emily shivered with the pure ecstasy of it. She loved it. It filled her being tonight as ever before. She was afraid to move or breathe, lest she break the current of beauty that was flowing through her. Life seemed like a wonderful instrument on which to play supernal harmonies. Oh, God, make me worthy of it. Oh, make me worthy of it, she prayed. Could she ever be worthy of such a message? Could she dare try to carry some of the loveliness of that dialogue divine back to the everyday world of sordid marketplace and clamoured streets? She must give it. She could not keep it to herself. Would the world listen, understand, feel? Only if she were faithful to the trust and gave out that which was committed to her, careless of blame or praise. High Priestess of Beauty. Yes, she would serve at no other shrine. She fell asleep in this rapt mood, dreamed that she was Sappho, springing from the Lucidian Rock, woke to find herself at the bottom of the haystack, with Ilsa's startled face peering down at her. Fortunately, so much of the hay had slipped down with her, that she was able to say cautiously. I think I'm all in one piece still. Haven When you have fallen asleep listening to the hymns of the gods, it is something of an anticlimax to be awakened by an ignominious tumble from a haystack. But at least it had aroused them in time to see the sunrise over Indian Head, which was worth the sacrifice of several hours of inglorious ease. Besides, I might never have known what an exquisite thing a spider's web beaded with dew is, said Emily. Look at it, swung between those two tall, plumy grasses. Write a poem on it, jeered Ilsa, whose alarm made her fleeting cross. What's your foot? Oh, it's all right. My hair is sopping wet with dew. So is mine. We'll carry our hats for a while, and the sun will soon dry us. It's just as well to get an early start, we can get back to civilization by the time it's safe for us to be seen. Only we'll have to breakfast on the crackers in my bag. It won't do for us to be looking for breakfast, with no rational account to give of where we spent the night. Elsa, swear you'll never mention this escapade to a living soul. It's been beautiful. But it will remain beautiful, just as long as only we two know of it. Remember the result of your telling about our moonlit bath. People have such beastly minds, grumbled Ilsa, sliding down the stack. Oh, look at Indian Head. I could be a sun worshipper this very moment. Indian Head was a flaming mount of splendor. The far-off hills turned beautifully purple against the radiant sky. Even the bare, ugly, hard-scrabble road was transfigured and luminous in hazes of silver. The fields and woods were very lovely in the faint purpley luster. The world is always young again for just a few moments at dawn, murmured Emily. Then she pulled her Jimmy book out of her bag and wrote the sentence down. They had the usual experiences of canvases the world over that day some people refused to subscribe ungraciously, some subscribed graciously, some refused to subscribe so pleasantly that they left an agreeable impression, some consented to subscribe so unpleasantly that Emily wished they had refused, but on the whole they enjoyed the forenoon especially when an excellent early dinner in a hospitable farmhouse on the western road filled up the aching void left by a few crackers and a night on a haystack. "'Spose you didn't come across any stray children today?' asked their host. "'No. Have any been lost?' Little Alan Bradshaw, Will Bradshaw's son, downriver at Melvin Point, has been missing ever since Tuesday morning. He walked out of the house that morning, singing, and hasn't been seen or heard of since. Emily and Elsa exchanged shocked glances. How old was he? Just seven, and an only child. They say his poor Ma is plumb distracted. All the Malvern Point men have been searching for him for two days, and not a trace of him can they discover. What can have happened to him? said Emily, pale with horror. It's a mystery. Some think he fell off the wharf at the point It was only about a quarter of a mile from the house, and he used to like sitting there and watching the boats, but nobody saw anything of him round the wharf or the bridge that morning. There's a lot of marshland west of the Bradshaw farm, full of bogs and pools. Some think he must have wandered there and got lost and perished. You remember Tuesday night was terribly cold. That's where his mother thinks he is. And if you ask me, she's right. If he'd been anywhere else, he'd have been found by the searching parties. They've combed the country. The story haunted Emily all the rest of the day, and she walked under its shadow anything like that always took almost a morbid hold on her she could not bear the thought of the poor mother at malvin point and the little lad where was he where had he been the previous night when she had lain in the ecstasy of wild free hours that night had not been cold But Wednesday night had, and she shuddered as she recalled Tuesday night, when a bitter autumnal windstorm had raged till dawn, with showers of hail and stinging rain. Had he been out in that, the poor lost baby? Oh, I can't bear it, she moaned it's dreadful agreed ilsa looking rather sick but we can't do anything there's no use in thinking of it oh suddenly ilsa stamped her foot i believe father used to be right when he didn't believe in god such a hideous thing as this how could it happen if there is a god, a decent god anyway. God hadn't anything to do with this, said Emily. You know the power that made last night couldn't have brought about this monstrous thing. Well, he didn't prevent it, retorted Ilsa, who was suffering so keenly that she wanted to arraign the universe at the bar of her pain. Little Alan Bradshaw may be found yet. He must be, exclaimed Emily. He won't be found alive, stormed Ilsa. No, don't talk to me about God, and don't talk to me of this. I've got to forget it. I'll go crazy if I don't. Ilsa put the matter out of her mind with another stamp of her foot, and Emily tried to. She could not quite succeed, but she forced herself to concentrate superficially on the business of the day, though she knew the horror lurked in the back of her consciousness. Only once did she really forget it, when they came round a point on the Malvern River Road and saw a little house built in the cup of a tiny bay, with a steep grassy hill rising behind it. Scattered over the hill were solitary, beautifully shaped young fir trees, like little green, elongated pyramids. No other house was in sight. All about it was a lovely autumnal solitude of grey, swift-running, windy river and red, spruce-fringed points. That house belongs to me, said Emily. Ilse stared. To you? Yes, of course. I don't own it, but haven't you sometimes seen houses that you knew belonged to you, no matter who owned them? No, Ilsa hadn't. She hadn't the least idea what Emily meant. I know who owns that house, she said. It's Mr. Scooby of Kingsport. He built it for a summer cottage. I heard Aunt Nett talking of it the last time I was in Wilkney. It was finished a few weeks ago. It's a pretty little house, but too small for me. I like a big house. I don't want to feel cramped and crowded, especially in summer." "'It's hard for a big house to have any personality,' said Emily. Thoughtfully. But little houses almost always have. That house is full of it. There isn't a line or corner that isn't eloquent. And those casement windows are lovable. Especially that little one, high up under the eaves over the front door. It's absolutely smiling at me. Look at it glowing like a jewel in the sunshine, out of the dark shingle setting. The little house is greeting us. You dear, friendly thing. I love you. I understand you. As old Kelly would say, may never a tear be shed under your roof. The people who are going to live in you must be nice people, or they would never have thought you. If I lived in you, beloved, I'd always stand at that western window at evenings to wave to someone coming home. That is just exactly what that window was built for, a frame for love and welcome. When you get through with talking to your house, we'd better hurry on, warned Ilsa. There's a storm coming up. See those clouds and those seagulls? Gulls never come up this far except before a storm. It's going to rain any minute. We'll not sleep on a haystack tonight, friend Emily. Emily loitered past the little house and looked at it lovingly as long as she could. It was such a dear little place, with its dubbed-off gables and rich brown shingle tints, and its general intimate air of sharing mutual jokes and secrets. She turned around half a dozen times to look upon it as they climbed the steep hill, and when at last it dipped below sight. She sighed. "'I hate to leave it. I have the oddest feeling, Ilsa, that it's calling to me, that I ought to go back to it.' "'Don't be silly,' said Ilsa impatiently. "'There, it's sprinkling now, if you hadn't spoke so long looking at your blessed little hut.' we'd have been out on the main road now, near shelter. Wow, but it's cold. It's going to be a dreadful night, said Emily in a low voice. Oh, Ilse, where is that poor little lost boy tonight? I wish I knew if they'd found him. Don't, said Ilse savagely. "'Don't say another word about him. It's awful. It's hideous. But what can we do?' "'Nothing. That's the dreadful thing about it. It seems wicked to go on about our business, asking for subscriptions when that child is not found.' By this time, they had reached the main road." The rest of the afternoon was not pleasant. Stinging showers came at intervals. Between them, the world was raw and damp and cold, with a moaning wind that came in ominous, sighing gusts under a leaden sky. At every house where they called, they were reminded of the lost boy for there were only women to give or refuse subscriptions. The men were all away searching for him. "'Though it isn't any use now,' said one woman gloomily. "'Except they may find his little body. "'He can't have lived this long. "'I just can't eat or cook for thinking of his poor mother.' "'They say she's nigh crazy. I don't wonder.' "'They say old Margaret McIntyre is taking it quite calmly,' said an older woman who was piecing a log cabin quilt by the window. "'I'd have thought she'd be wild, too. She seemed real fond of little Alan.' "'Oh,' Margaret McIntyre has never got worked up about anything for the past five years. Ever since her own son Neil was frozen to death. Seems as if her feelings were frozen then too. She's been a little mad ever since. She won't worry none over this. She'll just smile and tell you to spank the king. Both women laughed. Emily, with the storyteller's nose, scented a story instantly. But though she would fain have lingered to hunt it down, Ilsa hustled her away. We must get on, Emily, or we'll never reach St. Clair's before night. They soon realized that they were not going to reach it. At sunset, St. Clair's was still three miles away, and there was every indication of a wild evening. We can't get to St. Clair's, that's certain, said Ilse. It's going to settle down for a steady rain, and it'll be as black as a million black cats in a quarter of an hour. We'd better go to that house over there. And ask if we can stay all night. It looks snug and respectable, though it certainly is the jumping off place. The house at which Ilsa pointed, an old whitewashed house with a grey roof, was set on the face of a hill amid bright green fields of clover aftermath. A wet red road wound up the hill to it. A thick grove of spruces shut it off from the Gulf shore, and beyond the grove, a tiny dip in the land revealed a triangular glimpse of misty, white-capped grey sea. The near Brook Valley was filled with young spruces, dark green in the rain. The grey clouds hung heavily over it. Suddenly, the sun broke through the clouds in the west for one magical moment. The hill of clover flashed instantly into incredibly vivid green. The triangle of sea shimmered into violet. The old house gleamed like white marble against the emerald of its hilly background, and the inky black sky over and around it. Oh, gasped Emily, I never saw anything so wonderful. She groped wildly in her bag and clutched her jimmy book. The post of a field gate served as a desk. Emily licked a stubborn pencil and wrote feverishly. Ilsa squatted on a stone in a fence corner and waited with ostentatious patience. She knew that when a certain look appeared on Emily's face, she was not to be dragged away until she was ready to go. The sun had vanished, and the rain was beginning to fall again when Emily put her jimmy book back in her bag, with a sigh of satisfaction. I had to get it, Ilsa. Couldn't you have waited till you got to dry land and wrote it down from memory? grumbled Ilsa, uncoiling herself from her stone. No, I'd have missed some of the flavour then i've got it all now and in just exactly the right words come on i'll race you to the house oh smell that wind there's nothing in all the world like a salt sea wind a savage salt sea wind after all there's something delightful in a storm There's always something, deep down in me, that seems to rise and leap out to meet a storm. Wrestle with it. I feel that way sometimes, but not tonight, said Ilsa. I'm tired, and that poor baby. Oh... Emily's triumph and exultation went from her in a cry of pain. Oh, Ilse, I'd forgotten for a moment. How could I? Where can he be? Dead, said Ilse, harshly. It's better to think so than to think of him alive still, out tonight. Come, we've got to get in somewhere. The storm is on for good now. No more showers. An angular woman, panopiled in a white apron so stiffly starched that it could easily have stood alone, opened the door out of the house on the hill and bade them enter. Oh, yes, You can stay here, I reckon, she said, not inhospitably. If you'll excuse things being a bit upset, they're in sad trouble here. Oh, I'm sorry, stammered Emily. We won't intrude, we'll go somewhere else. Oh, we don't mind you, if you don't mind us. There's a spare room. You're welcome. You can't go on in a storm like this. There isn't another house for some ways. I'd advise you stop here. I'll get you a bit of supper. I don't live here. I'm just a neighbour, come to help out a bit. Hollinger's my name. Mrs. Julia Hollinger." Mrs. Bradshaw ain't good for anything. You've heard of her little boy, Mebs. Is this where... and... he hasn't been found? No. Never will be. I'm not mentioning it to her. With a quick glance over her shoulder along the hall. But it's my opinion... got in the quicksands down the bay. That's what I think. Come in and lay off your things. I suppose you don't mind eating in the kitchen. The room is cold. We haven't the stove up in it yet. It'll have to be put on up soon if there's a funeral. I suppose there won't be if he's in the quicksand." You can't have a funeral without a body, can you? All this was very gruesome. Emily and Ilsa would fain have gone elsewhere, but the storm had broken into full fury, and darkness seemed to pour in from the sea over the changed world. They took off their drenched hats and coats And followed their hostess to the kitchen, a clean, old fashioned spot which seemed cheerful enough in lamplight and fire glow. Sit up to the fire. I'll poke it a bit. Don't mind Grandfather Bradshaw. Grandfather, here's two young ladies that want to stay all night. Grandfather stared stonily at them out of little, hazy blue eyes and said not a word. Don't mind him, in a pig's whisper. He's over ninety, and he never was much of a talker. Clara, Mrs. Bradshaw, is in there, nodding towards the door of what seemed a small bedroom of the kitchen, Her brother's with her, Dr. McIntyre from Charlottetown. We sent for him yesterday. He's the only one that can do anything with her. She's been walking the floor all day, but we've got her persuaded to lie down a bit. Her husband's out looking for little Alan. A child can't be lost in the 19th century said Grandfather Bradshaw, with uncanny suddenness and positiveness. There, there now, Grandfather. I advise you not to get worked up. And this is the 20th century now. He's still living back there. His memory stopped a few years ago. What might your names be? Burnley? Star. Starr? from Blairwater. Oh, then you'll know the Murrays. Niece. Oh. Mrs. Julia Hollinger's Oh was subtly eloquent. She had been setting dishes and food down at a rapid rate on the clean, oil cloth on the table. Now she swept them aside extracted a tablecloth from a drawer of the cupboard and got silver forks and spoons out of another drawer and a handsome pair of salt and pepper shakers from the shelves. Don't go to any trouble for us, pleaded Emily. Oh, it's no trouble. If all was well here, you'd find Mrs. Bradshaw real glad to have you. She's a very kind woman, poor soul. It's awful hard to see her in such trouble. Allan was all the child she had, you see. A child can't be lost in the 19th century, I tell you, repeated Grandfather Bradshaw, with an irritable shift of emphasis. No, no. No soothingly of course not grandfather little alan will turn up all right yet here's a hot cup of tea for you i advise you to drink it that'll keep him quiet for a bit not that he's ever very fussy only everybody's a bit upset except old mrs mcintyre Nothing ever upsets her. It's just as well, only it seems to me real unfeeling. Of course, she isn't just right. Come, sit in and have a bite, girls. Listen to that rain, will you? The men will be soaked. They can't search much longer tonight. Will will soon be home. I sort of dreaded it. Clow'll go wild again when he comes home without little Alan. We had a terrible time with her last night, poor thing. A child can't be lost in the 19th century, said Grandfather, and choked over his hot drink in his indignation. No. "'Nor in the twentieth neither,' said Mrs Hollinger, patting him on the back. "'I advise you go to bed, Grandfather. You're tired.' "'I'm not tired, and I'll go to bed when I choose, Julia Hollinger.' "'Oh, very well, Grandfather. I advise you do not get worked up.' I think I'll take a cup of tea into Clara. Perhaps she'll take it now. She hasn't eaten or drunk since Tuesday night. How can a woman stand that? I put it to you. Emily and Ilsa ate their supper with what appetite they could summon up, while Grandfather Bradshaw watched them suspiciously and sorrowful sounds reached them from the little inner room. It is wet and cold tonight. Where is he? My little son, moaned a woman's voice, with an undertone of agony that made Emily writhe as if she felt it in herself. They'll soon find him, Clara, said Mrs. Honglinger, in a sprightly tone of artificial comfort. Just you be patient. Take a sleep, I advise you. They're bound to find him soon. They'll never find him. The voice was almost a scream now. He's dead. He is dead. He died that bitter cold Tuesday night so long ago. Oh, God. Have mercy, he was such a little fellow, and I've told him so often not to speak until he's spoken to. He'll never speak to me again. I wouldn't let him have a light after he went to bed, and he died in the dark, alone and cold. I wouldn't let him have a dog, he wanted one so much, but he wants nothing now. Only a grave and a shroud. I can't endure this, muttered Emily. I can't, Ilsa. I feel as if I'd go mad with horror. I'd rather be out in the storm. Lank Mrs. Hollinger, looking at once sympathetic and important, came out of the bedroom and shut the door awful isn't it she'll go on like that all night would you like to go to bed it's quite early but maybe you're tired and you'd rather be where you can't hear her poor soul she wouldn't take the tea she scared the doctor put a sleeping pill in it she doesn't want to sleep till he's found dead or alive If he's in the quicksands, of course, he never will be found. Julia Hollinger, you are a fool and the daughter of a fool. But surely even you must see that a child can't be lost in the 19th century, said Grandfather Bradshaw. Well... "'If it was anybody but you called me a fool, grandfather, I'd be mad,' said Mrs. Hollinger, a trifle tartly. "'She lighted a lamp and took the girls upstairs. "'I hope you'll sleep. I advise you to get in between the blankets, though there's sheets on the bed. "'They weren't all aired today. Blankets and sheets.' I thought it'd be better to air them in case there was a funeral. I remember the New Moon Murrays were always particular about airing their beds, so I thought I'd mention it. Listen to that wind. We'll likely hear of awful damage from this storm. I wouldn't wonder if the roof blew off this house tonight. Troubles never come singly. I advise you not to get up if you hear a noise through the night. If the men bring the body home, will likely act like a possessed, poor thing. Maybe you'd better turn the key in the lock. Old Mrs. McIntyre wanders round a bit sometimes. She's quite harmless and most sane enough but it gives folks a start. The girls felt relieved as the door closed behind Mrs. Hollinger. She was a good soul, doing her neighbourly duty as she conceived it, faithfully, but she was not exactly cheerful company. They found themselves in a tiny, meticulously neat spare room, under the sloping eaves. Most of the space in it was occupied by a big, comfortable bed that looked as if it were meant to be slept in, and not merely to decorate the room. A little four-paned window with a spotless white muslin frill shut them in from the cold, stormy night that was on the sea. Ah, Shivered Ilse and got into bed as speedily as possible. Emily followed her more slowly, forgetting about the key. Ilse, tired out, fell asleep almost immediately, but Emily could not sleep. She lay and suffered, straining her ears for the sound of footsteps The rain dashed against the window, not in drops, but sheets. The wind snarled and shrieked. Down below the hill, she could hear the white waves raving along the dark shore. Could it be only twenty-four hours since that moonlit, summery glamour of the haystack and the ferny pasture why, it must have been in another world. Where was that poor lost child? In one of the pauses of the storm, she fancied she heard a little whimper overhead in the dark, as if some lonely song, lately freed from body, were trying to find its way to kin. She could discover no way of escape from her pain. Her gates of dream were shut against her. She could not detach her mind from her feelings and dramatize them. Her nerves grew strained and tense. Painfully, she sent her thoughts out into the storm, seeking, striving to pierce the mystery. Of the child's whereabouts he must be found she clenched her hands he must that poor mother oh god let him be found safe let him be found safe emily prayed desperately and insistently over and over again all the more desperately and insistently because it seemed a prayer so impossible of fulfillment. But she reiterated it to bar out her mind's terrible pictures of swamp and quicksand and river, until at last she was so weary that mental torture could no longer keep her awake and she fell into a troubled slumber, while the storm roared on, and the baffled searchers finally gave up their vain quest.